Hey yo, good afternoon. What is good, fellow disruptors? Welcome to the Habitually Disruptive Podcast. My name is Gerardo Munoz, and I am your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and I'm habitually disruptive. I can't help it. It's just a thing that happens. It's like I'm wired that way. Nah, it's just because I developed a habit. Um, Here on the Habitually Disruptive Podcast, we work really hard to highlight the stories of disruptors for justice. John Lewis referred to this as people who make good trouble. And uh, I'm always looking for good troublemakers, uh, folks who are making it a little bit difficult for oppression to persist, folks who are interrupting harmful uh, practices and harmful mindsets and attitudes and habits. Um, and of course, we are in Tudo production. I've grown into this disruptive educator by drawing upon ideas both inside and outside education. I think that's key that we find ways to connect to things outside of school. Um, because after all, we are not just teaching uh, students, we're teaching humans and we are learning from humans and we're in the presence of humans every day. So whether my lessons come from soccer, hip hop, systems thinking, psychology, popular culture, especially hip hop, uh, my beloved Denver Nuggets, I strive for learning transference, applying my learning to my work and supporting those outside of education and theirs. Um, I'm re- I really do strive for a deeper intersectional consciousness um, about which you may learn more deeply from Kimberly Crenshaw's work. She is a critical race theorist. Don't tell Fox News. Um, but there's some amazing things there. And just I continue to search for individuals disrupting the status quo in their respective spaces of engagement. Another thing I like to do is practice radical joy. And it's been kind of hard lately, um, but that radical joy is something that I'm continually inspired to remember from the words of Dr. Bettina L. Love. Um, She's got this abolitionist credo, and I'm paraphrasing um, that she says, we may never see victory in our lifetime, but we must behave as though victory is just around the corner. And that's easier said than done. There's a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of harm in the world. And um, there's a lot of reasons to get down. I get down all the time. Shout out to my child printing something. Um, Good stuff. This is a good thing. This is a thing about not having a studio. Anyway, it's done printing. But these, this work is often really difficult to do and often really difficult to stay focused on um, and not get caught up in and not get caught up in kind of the sadness. So, uh, but we do look for that joy as we, as we kind of proceed. Um, if you're interested in supporting Two Dope Productions, we got a couple of podcasts that we're really proud of. Uh, one is obviously the flagship podcast podcast that I co-host with Kevin Adams, Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. We also have a series that we've been rolling out since the winter of 2020 called the exit interview exit interview highlights the stories of black educators who have been forced out of their teaching jobs and what they are doing now it's that it is wrenching content but it's also really inspirational when we learn from them that there is a teaching world elsewhere outside of schools the ultimate in disruption and finally there's habitually disruptive which i am doing um, as part of my work as Colorado Teacher of the Year. If you know Disruptors, please send me an email, 
Munoz Citoy 2021. It's an abbreviation for Gerardo Munoz, Colorado Teacher of the Year 2021 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and on Instagram through the pot, through the uh, Tudo Productions page at Two Dope Teachers. Find us on, on Facebook. I almost said Spacebook. What is that all about? Um, at Two Dope Teachers. And if you would like to support us financially, um, you can go to patreon.com slash Two Dope Teachers, where for as little as $5 a month, you help us keep the lights on and help us um, facilitate the process of freedom dreaming. I uh, want to shout out uh, Tim and Megan two new patrons who just joined us this weekend. Thank you so much for your support. We see you, we appreciate you, and it's just a beautiful thing. Before we get into this amazing uh, interview, just going to talk a little bit about the week. Um, a lot of you um, sent a lot of loving support um, in light of my introduction to last week's interview with Jenny Medrano about just kind of the musing that I have and I want to know everybody I'm okay um I'm all right and that ain't all right as uh as Dr. Love would say um I'm holding it together I'm holding it down I knew that when students came back it would restore that sense of joy that that I have but the big picture remains and the question is as the system seems to lose its mind on a national level there becomes a very serious question uh, as to whether I'm complicit in harm being done to children of color and, and communities and to educators, frankly. Um, my friend Rebecca on Facebook, uh, we went to grad school together way back in the day. And um, one of the, and she had this post, I'm gonna find this post. Um, she shared an article that was published uh, in the University of Florida uh, from a faculty member who quits, state policy literally becomes teachers die trying. So I'll be sharing that. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for that. But it's um, we're at a real crossroads. And as I was talking to some of my friends from the Latinx Education Caucus, I kind of realized that, you know, COVID created a pretty major disruption. Um, and my friend Julia pointed out that at the heart of the word disruption is rupture, right? So when something ruptures, it can no longer sustain the pressure that's being put on it, right? It, it becomes stretched beyond its limits. It becomes damaged beyond its, its limits. It frays, it starts to tear, and then it breaks open. And what comes out is what caused it to break open. And I'm starting to think, and you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about how COVID was going to change everything, how we have this opportunity to be completely different as we come back into schools in the fall, and as we have an opportunity to reshape education. And I think as we say those words, I think, I think it's important to realize that it's a little easier said than done again. I, don't, I think we've underestimated the kind of rupture that may have happened. The thing is that if we keep on responding to COVID the way we have, which is by not talking about it and by not taking mandates seriously and by allowing ourselves to be um, bullied into situations that are harmful for uh, our communities, for us, for our families, what's going to end up happening is COVID will just keep on winning. COVID is just going to keep winning. And, that, and that's the fact of the matter. So I've been thinking a lot about that. 
over the last few days um, as we read reports of positive cases, both locally and nationally, um, there was a map that came out um, of, of the United States in COVID cases. The whole map is red except for one state, which is blue. And I'm told that it's only blue because they've stopped reporting cases. So this is troubling. And as much as we would like to just put our heads in the sand and pretend that nothing's happening and, and just resolve ourselves to continuing to respond to COVID in the ways that we always have, I think that we put our system and our people in a lot of danger as we, as we um, go. So um, other things that are kind of weighing heavily on me right now, um, the situation in Afghanistan just continues to be heartbreaking. But for, for me, it's heartbreaking not because I'm surprised and not because it came out of nowhere and not because um, our, our men and women in uniform um, are in harm's way. Those aren't the things that are really getting to me. The things that are getting to me um, have to do with the fact that for about 50 years, um, we and the industrial powers have really worked tirelessly to disrupt that country, to disrupt that region. Um, if you haven't had a chance to really educate yourself about what's going on there, I highly recommend Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars, where he traces the history of Afghanistan from an intelligence perspective from 1979, the Soviet invasion. And of course, he gives some context leading up to it, to, um, to 9-11. And you know, there are some blind spots, um, pardon the ableist language, I apologize. There are some flaws in the story. There are some lenses that are not applied in the story that I think uh, should be named. Um, but the main thing is it kind of comes from the perspective of this, uh, of the intelligence community and all of the things that happened, all of the ways in which the United States and the Soviet Union provoked disorder in Afghanistan, um, and then change the narrative in order to justify bombing, attacking, and destroying uh, the country and its people. So I just want to recommend to everybody that before you adopt hot takes on what's going on in Afghanistan, you really have to try to understand the gravity of what's um, happening there and how it came to be. Um, another book I would really recommend is The Bookseller of Kabul. Uh, it follows a man running a bookstore under the Taliban and just really fascinating stuff that kind of takes you into that world. Um, there's been some really good coverage on Throughline, on uh, PRI's The World. There's some good places where you can get information that is useful and that is interesting. Um, my week. My week was exhausting, but it was good, um, mostly. Um, what I've kind of realized and what I think a lot of folks are experiencing right now is, you know, the ups are really up. Like you feel really, really good in the good moments and the downs can be really, really down. And without kind of disclosing everything that's kind of going on, um, around me, you know, I, I think that coming into this school year, I was already tired and fatigued and nervous and anxious. And I think every day also feels that way. And I have serious questions about whether I can respond to what's in front of me. Um, but uh, being with students was amazing again. 
Um, I got to see my eighth graders. Yo, this eighth grader dropped some real wisdom um, a few days ago when we were talking about quotes and we, we were doing this uh, sunglasses identity activity. Shout out Brooke, Washington uh, State Teacher of the Year, who uh, posted this activity, did it with Bill Gates. If you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. And um, And so the quote that this young scholar put on their sunglasses was, sometimes when it seems like things are falling apart, they're actually falling into place. And that's deep for a 13, 14 year old to share. And I've been turning that quote over in my mind since I heard it, trying to differentiate between the things that may be falling apart around me, near me, in my system, uh, versus things that may be actually falling into place. It comes back to the whole ethos of this podcast, which is that we disrupt. We seek the rupture. We seek the things that will force us to reckon with reality as opposed to our illusions of it. So that's a thought that I've kept with me and it's been pretty great, but I'm having a lot of fun with my students, um, staying connected. I'm teaching uh, eighth through 12th grade this year and uh, it's been real cool. I've had some conversations with colleagues uh, that have been really, really great and really empowering and you know, I have a leadership team that is um, really just taking a lot of risks and doing in a good way and really doing things that they believe are good for kids. And that's something that I just think is a beautiful thing. And, you know, sometimes things end up messy. Sometimes things don't work out the way you think that they're going to. Um, but when you lead with the heart and you lead with a humanizing lens, you can't lose y'all. And that maybe in this uh, COVID time, this is the most disruptive thing that we can be doing. So I wanna introduce my guest. Um, my guest is one of the most fun people that I've ever met. Now we did this interview over a month ago. This was before he and I were at space camp together in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, really got a chance to be in proximity with each other. But uh, I want to introduce to you Owen Bondano. Owen is the Michigan 2021 Teacher of the Year, and uh, Owen is one of the most wonderful, fun, exciting people that I've met in this journey. He's super fun. Um, Owen's an educator focused on growing students into empathetic, critical thinkers and communicators in spaces where they feel safe and empowered. He teaches ninth grade at Oak Park High School in Oak Park, Michigan. Unlocking student voices is at the center of his work. Owen holds a Bachelor of Science in Education from Wayne State University. He is founding co-conspirator of Oak Park High School's anti-racist education Avengers. That is so dope. They need t-shirts. Um, or area, the faculty advisor for the Queer Straight Alliance and an advocate of, for all students on the margins. Owen has piloted a gradeless classroom and actively decolonizes his curriculum. As an out member of the LGBTQ plus community and a co-conspirator for BIPOC um, or Black and, Black and Indigenous people of color, Owen is focused on centering voices from the margins and making schools a place of joy for all. This was a, a super fun conversation. I really hope you all enjoy it. Um, and uh, here he is, Owen Bandano. Michigan State Teacher of the Year and Habitual Disruptor. 
All right, my people, what is happening? You are habitually disruptive. And right now on the show, I've got one of my favorite disruptors, uh, somebody who is just super fun to talk to. Um, I want to introduce Owen Bondano, Michigan Teacher of the Year for the year 2021. What's up, Owen? What's up? How you doing? I am well. I am well. You and I are just talking about the weather. And if you want to hear our riveting conversation about weather, about Zoom backgrounds, about the amazing things you can do for $40 and a Pinterest account, uh, become a patron. Sign up at $5 a month and you can hear the bonus materials. Um, I'm well. How are you today, Owen? Also well. Busy, but well. Yeah. Um, so we have been, I, I've been really excited to talk to you, um, especially after we met a couple of weeks ago and we had this conversation. Um, we've spent a lot of time in similar spaces um, as state teachers of the year and uh, super excited to see you in, in Huntsville, Alabama, of all places, and uh, going to space camp. I feel like I should be like live, like live blogging from space camp. Like, what do you think about that? Right. I thought about it. I, um, a couple months ago, I started a TikTok account and I've been making like teacher focused videos and stuff on it. And I keep yeah. feeling like I'm going to have to make all this cool, um, space camp content. For <laughs> yeah. But then I also feel like I'm not creative enough for that. I don't know what I'm going to do. So we'll see. I know. Yeah. So I, every time, so we've had people uh, reach out to Tudor Productions and say, the only thing y'all are missing is a TikTok. You need a TikTok. Mm -hmm. And like, but then my daughter is like, you will be murdered uh, by me. <laughs> If you get on TikTok and you post things. And so, uh, so these are things that have to be weighed, sure. right? Yeah. You know, my, my life versus, you know, fire content uh, for, for the younger people. Um, so Owen, we, we have so much to talk about in terms yeah. of how just your own existence has been resistance in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think that you're, a, you're such a great fit for this ideal of habitual disruption for justice um, that we kind of, you know, I think there's just so much you can share here. So um, first question I want to ask you, do you consider yourself a disruptor? Absolutely, I do. Um, I'm a queer person raised by queer people and not just like regular queer people, but like politically active queer people. Um, <laughs> so I, it's just, it's in my DNA. Absolutely. I muted myself somehow and didn't know how I did that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the, the distinction... <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> you didn't meet yourself. Yeah, no doubt. I was like, that was a dramatic pause. Let that <laughs> sink in for a little bit. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, sort of, and it's funny because immediately I translated that in my mind to that's true because I was raised by a, by a Mexican guy and a white lady who weren't typical, you know, Mexican guy and white lady, but they were also politically really active. What kind mm -hmm. of political activism uh, were your parents engaged in? And, you know, how early were you, like, what is it that you saw with them that, um, that kind of led you down what I, what sounds like it's a sim similar path? So for me, it was my mother. My, my mom is a lesbian and um, she grew up in an era, which for many people is still the reality of compulsory heterosexuality, where it's just yeah. expected that you're going to meet someone of the opposite gender and get married and have babies and all that stuff. Yep. And so she told herself she was she was bi for most of her life, and that's how okay. she ended up marrying my dad and having two kids. Yeah. Um, but when I was little, it became too much for her. She just she had to live her truth. She had to be authentic to herself. So yeah. when I was eight. My parents divorced. My mom came out, 
And from the moment that she came out, I think my mother saw, you know, she, she saw the way she had been treated, the way that um, the community is treated. And she saw all these things and, and said that she had to do something about it. So when I say activism, I mean, both in terms of for the community, like she was on political action committees and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I literally remember doing homework at, at the back of political action committee meetings um, yeah. because, you know, that's where she was. That's where I was. Yep. Um, and then I also mean for the community as in like helping to organize local pride events and yeah. um, being on the, the board for local nonprofit organizations that were building community spaces for LGBTQ people and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think I saw an interesting sort of two sides of an activism coin. One side being that like loud vocal in your face, this is the change we need. That, yeah. that sort of is like external to the community almost. And then the other yeah. side of the coin being that internal community work of like building spaces and building capacity and like, wow. you know, building that uh, ability together to be a, a cohesive group. Um, I got to yeah. see both of those things through my mother's actions. No, that that's amazing. And I think um, I, I think that that makes such a big difference. And, and the more conversations I have with with folks disrupting in education, but also outside of education, the more it's a similar story. I was raised by people who were engaged in um, in working towards a better way in the, in in our society and in our cultures. Um, divorce can be really difficult. Uh, for kids. Um, and, you know, so, somebody once told me, it's like, well, when it happens when you're younger, it's really traumatic. But when it happens when you're older, it's uh, my, my folks divorced when I was in my early 20s. And I and I still think there's a lot of unpacking that I haven't done from that. Um, was was it different knowing? Well, first of all, to what extent did you understand why your mother had made the decision that I really need to live my truth? And how, how did that affect you as a young person? I mean, I understood it, obviously, not as deeply as I understand it now as an sure. adult. But, um, you know, she wasn't shy about explaining to me what was going on. So, yeah. you know, yeah. he explained to me that a lesbian is a woman who loves other women instead of loving men. And that's who yep. she is. And she tried to do some things where she was like, you know, you know, my friend Sandra and how we hold hands a lot. But like at eight, you hold hands with everyone. So I didn't. <laughs> that's that true. Way. Yeah. Um, but, but I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, different ages, it can affect you differently, but it, it affects you either way. Cause my sister is actually eight years older than I am. So okay. I was eight and she was 16. Yeah. So we had radically different experiences with this, um, with those, you know, we think about developmentally where we both were, but we were yeah. both still definitely affected by it. And I think in some ways it was easier than some people's divorces because it wasn't like our parents hated each other. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't that kind of a divorce. Um, you know, there were there were years there uh, right after it happened where like it was hard for them to be in the same room because they were hurt and whatever else. But like right. they eventually became friends again um, and and now they're good friends. And uh, and so it's it's one of those things, you know, they always cared about each other. They never stopped caring about each other. And that made it easier. Um, yeah. And one thing I remember, I was grateful at the time that there wasn't you know, I, I was aware enough of like other people's parents getting divorced and whatever else that like I knew it could be messy and that the court yeah. could be involved. And like my parents yep. didn't do all that. They settled everything, you know, on their own. But yep. looking back, I know actually that's part of the trauma for my mother is she settled everything so nicely because she knew that the wrong judge in the early 90s yeah. that she could lose custody of me and my sister. 
That's right. what you want to record. You know? That's right. Yeah. And I think it's, I think I'm so glad you, um, you, you mentioned the environment in the nineties. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, it, Colorado passed amendment two, um, which essentially barred uh, same sex couples from existing in any meaningful legal way for their partners. So you could be on your deathbed and it did not even matter that you had lived with this person for 35 years in a loving, uh, committed relationship. You just weren't allowed to be in the room. And when amendment two passed, it was really traumatic. And so I think, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of rose colored perceptions of, um, of LGBTQI plus struggles today um, mm-hmm. that it's like, man, like Target is celebrating Pride Month. It's so great, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's so much better than it used to be. Um, but I think also through that lens, it's hard to understand, um, you know, the the real threats that um, existed, you know, back then um, that it's still exist today. It's all changed so quickly. And like, I was mentioning being on TikTok earlier, like one of the yeah. nice things about TikTok that I find kind of interesting is I, I feel like I get tapped into the younger queer community. Yeah. TikTok, and a lot of them don't know their history and they don't know mm. how recently things were like that. Um, right. You know, they, they see the Target Pride collection and they rail against the commercialization of Pride, which like is totally valid. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm against rainbow capitalism and like yes. all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, whenever I see some corporation's pride collection, there is a part of me that is so overjoyed that one, it's no longer like capitalist suicide for them to support us so publicly. And two, they now acknowledge that there are enough of us that they want to get our money. (laughs) Capitalism bad, but at the same time, it's a nice metric for for the way that acceptance has moved in the last couple of decades. And even, you know, as somebody in his early thirties, like I'm kind of old for the queer community. Like Mm -hmm. I'm kind of becoming a queer elder already because that's just kind of how the community (laughs) works, especially as as a transgender person, like transgender people become elders early if we survive. Um, And so I'm kind of getting into that like elder stage for a queer person and um, uh, you know, in comparison to the community. And I feel like it's becoming more and more my job to like remind queer youth that like the rights you have were hard fought and have not been around for very long and could be taken from you. And it's it's your job not to rest comfortably. Yeah. You know, my, my parents, uh, my, my moms specifically have been together um, since I was like 14, 15. So we're talking at least 15, 16, 17 years at this point. I can't do math. Um, (laughs) But they've only been legally married now, I want to say for six years, maybe wow. because that's when it became legal. And they they got legally married very quickly after it became federally legal. Um, yeah. And well, we, because to your because to your point, you don't know when that policy is going to be overturned. Right. And that's you know, we had so many examples before it federally became legal of states that would go back and forth and would have it for a while and it would go away and blah, blah, blah. And so every time some state before that would pass, um, would pass some legislation that made it legal, you would see a rush of queer people running to get married yeah. before, before the right was taken away from them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's intense. Um, because I think, I think it is interesting and I, and I struggle with this with, with my own kid who is so active and so 
fired up um, and so disappointed <laughs> in where everything is at. And I, and I love that point because it, it's, it would be, it'd be really easy. So you're giving me a way to parent my kid through like consciousness, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it, it's easy for me. I'm in my mid forties. It's easy for me to say, well, sit down youngster. Let me tell you how it used to be. Um, but I love how you're approaching it as an elder saying to the younger folks, it's like, we, we haven't had this for very long, but you have to keep fighting. I'm not going to tell you that it was so much worse back then. And it's good right now. That perspective that, you know, just like, you know, j just like things can turn for the better really quickly. They can also turn for the worse really quickly. It just mm -hmm. takes uh, having the wrong person potentially in office for four years that um, emboldens folks to, to kind of go back to these, to these um, arcane and uh, you know, sort and these, these really trying to find a word, um, <laughs> these really archaic practices and ideas, yeah. you know, um, l let me ask you a little bit. So you identify as trans, correct? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about what your journey has been? Because it's my understanding that you are the first transgendered individual to get Michigan State Teacher of the Year. Am I right about that? Yeah, as far as we can tell from the records, I'm the first state level teacher of any state who is out as transgender. Yeah. And I think that's such an important caveat, right? Um, because it's like you are the first one who is out because right. there is that that possibility that you had folks that were just they they were just closeted. They they right. were living in an environment where it was not gonna be okay. Um what was your path? How did you come to a point where you felt that you're like, this is who I am going to choose to be in this moment um in my life? So I have, I, I fall under the queer umbrella in multiple ways. Um, I've always known that I was bi, for example, like mm -hmm. I don't remember a point where I realized that or came out or anything like that. That's just always been my reality and my truth. Um, yeah. I joke that there were a lot of like cartoons as a kid, like when I watched Hercules and I liked both Megara and Hercules, like <laughs> obviously, you know, um, but uh, so that part's always been sort of natural. And um, my parents have always been relatively accepting of that. You know, my, my dad, when I was a teenager, talked to me about how like he had no problem with that. He just was worried because he knew it would make my life harder. And I think that's a common concern for parents. Right. Yep. Um, but it was always just a part of me. But um, then actually, so I always felt different, but I figured it had something to do with that. Um, I remember being a little kid and like, I used to, I, I used to play soccer. I played soccer for 10 years when I was a kid. Okay. And, um, the the playground at my elementary school had this field way in the way back where all the boys would run and play soccer at recess yeah. and we wouldn't let any of the girls play with them back there of and of course yeah so i used to go back every once in a while and try to join the game and they would be like no girls can't play with us and mm -hmm. i had this disconnect where i would be like yeah duh girls can't play with you what does that have to do with me even though yeah, I exactly knew my that I was a girl and I'd been told my whole life that I was a girl. Um, yeah. So I had those moments of disconnect. You know, I used to throw a fit when my mom would make me put on a dress to go see my grandparents and stuff All like right. that. Um, and so then I got to be a teenager and I started making friends with people my age who were queer. Um, and we started being old enough to have like romantic relationships and stuff like yeah. that. Um, 
And I remember having this conversation. There was a bunch of us all sitting around talking. And one of the things that came out of this conversation was that the people in the room who were same gender attracted talked about that sameness being part of the attraction. And the mm. people in the gender who were or the people in the room who were different gender attracted, they talked about that otherness, that difference being part of the attraction. Yeah. And I realized that when I had a boyfriend, I felt that sameness. And when I had a girlfriend, I felt that otherness. Yeah. Uh, and that to me was a big clue about why I still felt different, even in those settings. But that was scary. And I pushed it away and I didn't deal with it until I was in college. Um, I was 19 when I sort of like put all the pieces together and confronted mm. this reality. And it actually came, I was walking down campus one day at Wayne State and um, I got really angry and I couldn't figure out why at first. I'm not, I'm not an angry person. I'm a super right. back person. Yeah. So I got so angry that I had to duck into a library bathroom and cry for a while. And when I really examined it, I realized the thing that had made me so mad was these college boys who were just being college boys. They were on their skateboards in the middle of the, of the quad, just like, yeah. you know, yeah. trying dumb trick, falling off, getting back up, whatever else, you know, doing all the things yeah. that they did. And the anger came from this sense that they were taking for granted and they were taking risks with the thing that I would have given anything to have, which was a male mm. body. You know, they were taking these wow. physical risks with that body. So they had it and I wanted it so bad and they were just being so careless with it. And that's where that anger came from. Um, and that's when I was like, I need to, I need, I need to solve this because wow. random amounts of anger and crying in the campus bathrooms is not going to be my life. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's understandable, but not preferred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's when I started my official transition was age 19. Um, which at first was just what we call a social transition. You know, I told people, please use this name and pronoun for me. I started dressing in more masculine clothes. I yep. had a masculine haircut, stuff like that. And then as time went on, I changed my name, started hormones, did all the things. Yeah. Wow. Th thank you so much for sharing that. And um, as a cis hetero person, um, I'm also like really grateful that um, you're just willing to educate me and others here um, as, as a, as a person of color, one of the things that gets really tiresome, I think, as you can probably relate to, is having to educate folks from the dominant um, culture within within whatever community you're in. So for me, it's white folks, um, and so I know that I know that it takes a profound level of you know kind of trust and strength to say, I'll go ahead and share this because you know I'm I'm learning things like you know, um, just the nuances just from this conversation. So I really do appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, uh, when I meet sometimes with kids and GSAs and stuff, they'll sometimes ask me the question of like, how do you deal with that one relative who always asks dumb questions about stuff yep. and stuff like that, you yep. know? And I'll, I'll usually tell them, you know, I'm more than happy to answer any questions. I'm an educator and this is part of my work, I feel as an educator. Um, and so I, I'm more than happy to do that kind of educating, but they are not responsible for answering those questions. It's not their job and they don't need to do that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give them some resources if they truly want to take on an educational role, but I try to, I try to encourage them to set boundaries around that. Um, yeah. But for me, yeah, I feel like, first of all, I hate the feeling of feeling like I have a question, but I'm not allowed to ask it. So I try to like, sure. avoid that feeling in others as much as I can. Yeah. Um, but then I also, yeah, as a, as a teacher, I feel like my job in general is to to help people understand things they didn't understand before. And I know that yeah. I I fall into a place right now. Um, my identity is such that that in general society is very curious about my story right now. And mm. um, 
I feel, you know, I, I think that I am the Michigan teacher of the year for a reason right now. And I think that's part of that reason is we, we're having this moment as a society of really beginning to reckon with what do we as a society think about trans people? What do we do with, with us, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so I get to be in this more public eye to say, hey, I'm a person and you don't get to just make decisions about me without talking to me. Yeah. So that sort of, I don't know if it's a negotiation for you, um, but that sort of carrying all of those things into your work as state teacher of the year, what's that been like? What's your process been like? Because you've got your, your trans identity, which is who you are. And then you also are an educator. So how do you carry those things into the spaces in which you engage, um, the people you engage with, you know, that kind of thing? Well, I definitely did a little bit of tokenizing myself on accident, which I, I think probably you can relate to as well. Um, I, you know, but the first couple of interviews I did the day that it was announced I was Michigan Teacher of the Year, um, that was last summer because Michigan does it by academic year. So it was the summer of 2020. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, most of the questions I was being asked at that time was about what I thought school would look like in the fall since we were still, nobody right. knew what it I know that's, that was every interview about. that yeah. all of us did is like, but what yeah. about COVID? Right, so that's, <laughs> right. that's all I got asked about at that time yep. for sure. Um, but I realized before the end of the first day of Michigan Teacher of the Year that nobody had asked me anything about being trans and it was because they probably didn't know. And I had this vision in my head of like, somebody later trying to out me viciously or mm. thinking that I was keeping it a secret or something right. like that. Right. Um, and I decided I wanted to control the narrative. Mm. So um, I had another interview that evening and I literally just found a way to shoehorn it in. Like, wow. I think they asked me <laughs> about like, about what I do in my classroom that makes me, you know, why am I the Michigan teacher of the year? And I uh -huh. talked to them equity and inclusion work in my classroom. And I was very like, as a trans person, you know, um, and I did the interviewer react because that's not the kind of thing that I think a lot of these interviewers are prepared to hear or know how to respond. <laughs> how did they react? Yeah, I mean, oh, after, after we that's great. Right. Next he, question. He definitely said to me, well, that's not where I expected that to go. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I just, I wanted to control it and I wanted to get it out there in yeah. a way with me getting it out there. But I think as a result, I have sort of ended up tokenizing myself because now I am like the trans teacher in a lot of ways in these spaces, you know, and I, I get to do a lot of work beyond that. Um, yeah. But that still is like my recurring, and, and I'm fine with that. I, I'm fine with that being my focus. And I yeah. do get to still do other interesting things, but it definitely in some cases has like, pigeonholed me in that way, which is okay. I've actually talked to other, both queer teachers of the year, because um, there are others who are not trans, but queer. Yeah. And then um, one of the previous national teachers of the year who's a lesbian, you know, I've had some conversations with them. And um, we've talked about how, even though my year may have been very, you know, queer focused, my label doesn't go away. And so I get to do, you know, if there's other stuff I'm interested in, I'll get to do that work as I continue. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really okay, in my opinion, that I'm sort of focusing there now. I, I really do think that, like I said earlier, this was the reason I am where I am right now. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I th that, that is really interesting. And I think that um, I don't think I've had to experience the same type of pigeonholing. I think I've kind of, I, I think for whatever reason, it becomes less of a thing because having 
a um a latino like state teacher of the year just doesn't seem all that unusual right even though i think and i'm just gonna keep on saying it i think i'm the first chicano identifying state teacher of the year from colorado well so it's interesting because that's that's a whole project that i'm trying to initiate within our cohort which is this we count project where it's like let's count up how many uh state teachers of the year we've had in all of our states who are who are people of color who identified as people of color mm-hmm. and in colorado as i go through lists it's hard to tell um there have been some some uh some latinx women i think who have been state teacher of the year um but in terms of somebody who identifies as chicano mexican american i think i may be the first one but um but that that just hasn't followed me in the same way that i think yours has followed you and I think it is interesting because there's this kind of thing it's like you're a disruption in the sense that the war and and I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this a disruption in the sense that the world is not quite used to hearing people being out as trans folks um but then you get kind of pigeonholed and so now you have to sort of negotiate between this is a really important moment for a person like me to have a platform but also there are literally just like pedagogical educational things that i also want to work on so how do you how do you uh address that i mean um you know i think in some ways i i've talked so i uh in my building i am one of three co-founders of a grassroots anti-racist teacher organization and um, the three of us who founded it, there's me, uh, who's a white guy, there is a white woman, and then there's a black woman. And the three of okay. us together form this little coalition, right? Um, and uh, I, I've talked to them before about how, in some ways, being transgender gives me a little more experience and empathy with people mm-hmm. of color. Um, because we've we've all experienced oppression and obviously the oppression is different you know one of the things I make sure to point out whenever anyone tries to compare those things is like I have a choice I can you know I'm pretty effeminate and I embrace my own like gender queerness and stuff like that but if I wanted to I could butch it up you know I could (laughs) in a way I could I could make it so that you wouldn't know by looking at me necessarily that I was queer um I choose not to, but I could. Whereas that's right. obviously not an option for someone whose skin color is going to give them away as yeah. being a person of color. Um, yep. But you know, because of that, I think that being trans and being bi and being raised by a queer activist, I have a lens into the equity work that we're doing in schools that's kind of unique. Mm-hmm. And so, on the one hand, yeah, it does kind of like pigeonhole me into this, like you are the trans teacher of the year, but also I think that it allows me to expand that into my larger platform of equity and abolitionist teaching and so on anyway. So, so uh, because all connected, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. So much good stuff there. In a second, I'll have you talk a little bit about that. You and I talked um, a few weeks ago about the relationship between abolition and queerness, and you appeared on this amazing webinar um, where you were able to unpack that a little bit. Um, so I, I'm, I, I love the intersectional analysis of it, saying that there are differences, but there are points of connection and points of empathy. That that idea of points of empathy, I think, is a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you think that your sort of engagement into the equity work with who you are and who you and who you 
connect with and choose to collaborate with. You mentioned this anti-racist uh, coalition that you're that you're co-organizing in and that you're participating in. Um, that intersectional approach. How has that proven to be a disruption of a lot of the equity work that you see um, that is, frankly, making a lot of people a lot of money these days? Yeah, that's that's for sure. I think that, um, and to be clear, I love my school, and I'm not bad-mouthing my school in any way. Absolutely. We love, school. we love our schools like we love our families, right? Absolutely. It's imperfect. Sometimes it's a little messy, um, but we love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that sometimes my school can fall into that trap of, with equity, the, the lip service. We're going to say the right words and we're going to put anti-racist in our mission That's statement. Right. That's right. But then what actions do we have that back those things up? Especially yep. I teach in a school that is 98% black or multiracial students. Yep. Um, and so how do we make, you know, I, I had a long conversation once with my superintendent about how she saw our school district as a place where if we, if we do it right, um, black parents wouldn't have to choose between sending their kids to a school with great academics, but where they don't look like the rest of the student body or right. sending their kids to a place where the academics maybe weren't as high a standard, but they at least are with people that they can- community. Like, yeah. Um, and, and if we play our cards right, we could make my district a place where you could have the best of both worlds. Uh, and so we talk about those kinds of things, but then I think there is often a disconnect between what that looks like and what we're really doing. Um, and my students for sure see that. Um, yeah. You know, they, they talk about the things they see in, in the classroom all the time. And um, the one example I have just from an from my own lens as a queer person, um, I did a training with my um, my coworkers about how we create safe spaces for queer kids. Um, and then I, if they wanted to, they could take a safe space sticker for their room after the training. And one of my students brought me a social media post that he had screenshotted that had that sticker from one of my coworkers doors and then a caption on it about how that was a lie and that teacher doesn't keep kids safe and lets kids bully them all the time and blah, blah, blah. And so my, my we call it a QSA in my school, a queer straight alliance, because they didn't mm. feel QSA was inclusive enough. Yeah, um, yep. So my, my QSA kids and I sat down and talked about that and, and what that really looks like. And one of the things that they started constructing, it unfortunately got interrupted by the pandemic, but we'll pick it up again. But one of the sure. things they were starting to construct was a contract of the things that they need in order to feel safe in a classroom. And yeah. the idea was- oh, That's that brilliant. Were, they'll present that contract to my coworkers as part of the LGBTQ safe spaces training. And then only by agreeing to uphold that contract, will they get the safe space sticker? Oh, I, I love that so much. You know, I, um, are you familiar with the, with the podcast teenage therapy? Mm -mm. It's, so my 16 year old turned me on to it. Um, and, and she's not like, she, she thinks, me podcasting is the nerdiest thing ever. Um, and she's like, whatever. But but she's like, I actually really like this podcast, but don't go overboard with it. <laughs> so, But so what it is, is it's literally high school students and they, they're wild. They have like 60,000 followers on Instagram. It's wild. Um, but it's just them talking about things that teenagers are experiencing and how they're feeling. And one of the topics of conversation was how adults are so needlessly critical of their use of social media mm. and you know the kind of fights they get into in social media and what these young people were pointing out was that 
Well, first of all, yeah, I think we probably spend too much time on our phones, but at the same time, like we hold people accountable. Like we, we may not be good at it because we're 14 or 15, 16, yeah. right? We, we don't know the polite way to hold people accountable, but we hold people accountable. And so what you're sharing about these screenshots um, is like the most Freudian thing I've heard today, where it's kind of like, yeah, the, the Paulo Freire quote that I just try to live by, which is um, that there is no true word that is not at the same time a praxis. So mm-hmm. You can say the words, but if you're not if you're not working to make it a part of your life in practice, then it's not actually a true word for you and you're abusing the word. And so I can see where teachers can get pretty upset. First of all, why are you posting things on social media that are going to expose you? The children do not hesitate to expose you if right. you are in their words fake, <laughs> you know, um, but but also that that idea that students I mean, they see us, they, we think they don't, but they see us. Absolutely. Um, For my own selfish reasons, we should exchange contact information for your QSA and our GSA, which they changed to Stanford gender and sexuality Alliance. um, Because for the same reason that your students uh, changed the name, because they're like, we, we actually think everybody needs to be thinking about issues of gender and sexuality and respecting folks, even if they identify as cis hetero straight people who want to be in uh, different gendered relationships, if they're different gendered attractive, as, as, as you just taught me, um, that they, that we need everybody to get this and to feel like this is a place where they can actually talk about stuff. So um, that's amazing stuff. So um, we're going to. The Alliance is actually a pretty common way to, okay. to rephrase it, but my kids didn't like it because um, they wanted to be different from the GSAs of the schools surrounding us. They just yep. wanted to be and I was like, okay, kids, whatever. <laughs> Gotta stand out. Gotta stand. I mean, standing out is is the road to authentic disruption, right? It's like we're just gonna be here. So uh, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna pay pay some bills and um, tell you how to get connected to our Patreon. When we get back, we're gonna hear uh, Owen talk about um, the the work that gives him joy and uh, these victories that you know may seem right around the corner, some abolitionist stuff, and then we're gonna have a little bit of fun. So stay with us. Hello, listener. If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers and Mike podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire because of people like you we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators and we've added new features including episode transcripts and a revamped website all because of listeners like you but that's just the beginning your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for and at the 15 Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash two dope teachers. That's patreon.com slash two dope teachers. What's up, everybody? 
I am back. I'm Gerardo Munoz. I am habitually disruptive. Owen Bondano is the Michigan State Teacher of the Year. Owen is also disruptive. And so we're just having a conversation about uh, disruption in school. So um, so I, I want to run a passage by you that I know that you're familiar with because you've done some work with Abolitionist Teaching Network, uh, who is really amazing. Um, and just seeing seeing like you on the what I don't know, it, it's like a marquee on Instagram when they put these things up uh, mm -hmm. with folks like Key Gross and just some amazing uh, folks was was really dope. I'm like, I know that guy. Um, so get those images and being like, look at all those cool people and me. <laughs> <laughs> See, that that's something that I'm trying to like to do. I was like, man, Boots Riley got to be in a picture with me. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if that carries uh, any weight anywhere, but I, I try to <laughs> I, I try to fake that a little bit. But so you know, I, I Kevin and I we we co-host two dope teachers and a mic. We had the amazing opportunity to be in conversation with Dr. Bettina L. Love and like just what an amazing. Um, I don't know, like to to say that she is parenting all abolitionists everywhere, I feel like sells the work short. Um, but Dr. Love talks about this abolitionist mindset, which is that you engage the work in community, A, as if you, with the understanding that you may not see meaningful change in your own lifetime, but B, carrying yourself as though victory is right around the corner. So I want to hear from you, like, what is it in the work that you've been doing uh, just in general in life that gives you joy? And what is that victory that, you know, um, that you think, so the victory that you hope to see, maybe not in your lifetime, but the victory that might actually just kind of be around the corner on the days that you really believe in the work. So that's a whole bunch I'm throwing at you right now. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, talk a little bit about the, about the role of joy in the disruptions that you are bringing every day? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question about joy in this particular area of work because I think that for such a long time, um, queerness was considered a problem. You know, for a long time, it was even considered a mental illness. It was in the- in Yeah, that's right, mental illness. Yep. Yeah, um, at least call it inversion. But, uh, <sighs> right? <Man>. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but- for so long, it's been seen as something that needs either solving or tolerating or working around or whatever. Yeah. Um, yep. One of the things I try to uplift, especially when I'm working with young people, is the idea that there is inherently joy in being queer. Mm. Uh, there's a freedom in being queer. There's a sense of self. I've always felt, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, but I've always felt like being queer is a little bit punk rock by nature. Yes. Oh, I was hoping <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I think that you're already kind of like in some ways putting the middle finger up to the establishment just by yeah. being queer and being yourself. Your um, existence quite, is resistance in a very real yeah. way. You like just by walking around in the world as who you are authentically is, is resistance. And it's my personal theory that that's why you see so many queer people with like wonky colored hair and like facial piercings <laughs> yes. and stuff like that is because we're already like, whatever, I am what You're I like, am. Y'all ain't y'all are gonna hate on us. Like I could right. I could wear a three piece suit and be so neatly put together, but the first time you hear about who I am, mm -hmm. it's not gonna matter what I look like. And so here we go. 
And for me, there was, a, there was actually a road to that as well. Cause I've, I've always been proud to be queer and to be a member of this community. I think my mother made sure of that. Um, but I also, when I started transitioning, I had this, you know, part of it was dysphoria. I had this overwhelming need for strangers on the street to look at me and know that's a dude. Um, I purposely picked a name, you know, one of the other names that I was, I was thinking about at the time when I renamed myself was Sam, because my mother has always called me Sam for a variety of reasons that would take too long to explain. Sure, sure, sure. But I thought about that as like a homage to my mother. Um, But I couldn't do it because Sam is such a, gender neutral name and mm-hmm. I wanted a name that nobody would mistake for a girl's yep. name I was so concerned with like I need you to know that I'm a dude you know um yeah. and I had to over the course of years I, I used to debate like do I like that thing like sewing or cooking do I like it because I've been conditioned as oh, 19 man. years of socialization yeah. a girl to like it or because I yep. actually like it and it, it yeah. took me a long time to realize it doesn't matter why I like it I just yeah. like it yeah. 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 No, that makes me think of the reason I'm just like, ah, oh, there's so many connections I'm making to that statement because yeah. as a, as a mixed background, uh, Latinx person, um, I'm, I'm constantly in this thing. Oh, wait, is this, is this my, is this a part of me that was trying to participate in white supremacy that enjoys this yeah. thing? Is this me just being too Chicano for things? Is just, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, you know, when people say, well, just be yourself. I'm like, ha I don't know what that is. <laughs> right, um, <exactly. laughs> you know, so there's that part. And then I remember it reminds me of a, of a really funny conversation I had with a seventh grade girl a few years ago. Um, and she said, she's like, I don't know if I'm gay because I'm gay or I'm gay because middle school boys. And, that I said, <laughs> and so what I said to her was, I'm like, I mean, it, it can be both, can it? Like, so like I, I feel like they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> like, why does it have to be one or the other? <laughs> and as a moments. as a middle school boy who is totally obnoxious, like oh, yeah. I, I empathize for sure. I've definitely had moments of being like, why do I like boys? They're just dumb. <laughs> why is this a thing? God. Uh, <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah, and and I, I, it took me a long time, I think, to come to a place of accepting the fact that I am a little bit more femme. Like I'm, I'm living proof that being a trans man is not about being masculine. It's about an internal sense of knowing that I'm a man um, because I'm one of the femmest dudes you'll meet. Like <laughs> I, I love, I love fashion and I love, yep. you know, I'm, just, I'm the kind of person that someone sees me from a mile away. And now normally they go, Oh, that's a gay guy. Um, and because they, they pick that kind of like flamboyance about me and, sure. and sort of cleanliness, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but it took me a long time to realize that like, it doesn't matter if the stranger on the street reads me as masculine enough. Yeah. Uh, and, and still I have days where like, I'll look at myself in the mirror when I'm getting dressed and I'll think to myself, if you wear what you're wearing right now, there is a high likelihood that a random, you know, waiter or employee at Target or whatever is going to ma'am you. They're going to misgender you. Are you okay with that? Yeah. And I have to make the decision on that day based on the way I feel if I'm okay with that or not. Interesting. Um, yeah. no, so deep. the road to having this joy in your own existence, um, there used to be a much heavier, uh, when I was, you know, 12 years ago, when I started transitioning, there used to be a much heavier, um, God, 13 years ago now, 14 almost, geez. Anyway, um, there used <laughs> to be a, what's, what's the right? uh, a much, a much heavier um, emphasis on the idea of passing. 
that that you would be read as the gender you are and not yeah. the one you were. Um, yeah. And now a lot of the young queer people are like, I don't care what you read me as. Like, I don't care about passing as much anymore. And yeah. the idea of passing in general is is all kinds of like supremacist oh, so. anyway. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. 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 But I, I brought with me so many mixed things about being about gender and about what that meant. You know, for a long time, when someone asked me what my gender was, I wouldn't use the word man. I would say I was a guy, I was a dude, I'm a trans boy, whatever, mm. because the word man to me has yeah. so many toxic masculinity connotations. Yes. yes. Um, that I couldn't embrace it for myself. And it's still kind of uncomfortable for me yep. to say that I'm yep. a man. Yeah. Um, because there's just so many things that go along with what it means to quote unquote be a man that I don't want to take on. That's um, right. But I was, right. you know, one of the things you have to do when you transition is you have to be seeing a therapist who specializes in gender in order to like get letters written to get hormones and to change your name and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. one of the most helpful things my gender therapist ever said to me, um, I had a great group of guys that I worked with. I worked at the gym on Wayne State's campus when I was transitioning. And I had a great group of guys that I worked with who very much took me under their wing, accepted yeah. me immediately as a guy and like taught me all kinds of things about passing and about what guys do and don't. And like gave me that window in that I hadn't had before. Um, yeah. And so I would often talk about them with my gender therapist. And she once said to me that that's really great. It's really kind of them to be helping you out and to be taking under their wing. But remember that you get to decide what kind of a man you want to be. Wow. And that question has guided me for the last however long, you know? I feel like every person born male needs to hear that. Mm -hmm. Because I think myself, you know, as, as I've said, I, I identify cis hetero, but, but that term man, masculinity, like mm -hmm. those are such loaded terms for me because, um, because I just don't, I, I just don't think I've ever felt comfortable with the toxicity of like what we see in, you know, patriarchal manhood. And um, I, just when you said that, I, I just got chills. And it's like, that is a question. What kind of man are you going to be? Um, but I did cut you off, so I'm going <laughs> to give it back oh, to no, you. Okay. Um, we got to take it back to the original question because we got off track, of course. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, I think when it comes to the joy, one of the things I make sure to do now is when I meet queer kids, when I go to talk to GSAs, when I go to just whatever, when I meet queer kids, I make sure now to say at some point in the conversation, congratulations. Congratulations on being queer. Congratulations yeah. on coming out. Congratulations on being authentic. Because I want them to hear a deliberate, positive framing of their identity. Because so many people are going to frame it in the negative. Yeah. Um, and there's so much trauma and shame that our society puts on queerness that I want them to hear an adult who is queer say to them, congratulations, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you, you know? Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so it's beautiful. I try to bring that kind of joy. And then you're asking about um, the second half of the question, the, uh, <laughs> the what do I see is that victory? And I think for me, for, for queerness, that victory is a time and a place where as a society, my existence doesn't have to be inherently political anymore. Um, where I just get to be a person and all queer people just get to be people. You know, I talk when I, I do like trainings and stuff for other teachers. Um, I sometimes get asked about how to tackle queerness in like age appropriate ways for younger kids. You know, they have this idea that like you can't tackle it at certain ages or whatever. Right. And I talk about how like no matter how young a kid is, you can do stuff that normalizes the idea that queer people are just part of the human experience. They're one variation yeah. on the human experience. And yeah. you know, I talk about like 
finding books that have, you know, the, the character has two moms or two dads yeah. or whatever. Things like yeah. that, it's just a part of sort of the background radiation of what they're exposed to. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I would love to get to a place, and I think we will get to a place um, where it is just seen as a variation on the human experience and not as something that is inherently divisive or political or that you need to have an opinion about. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're like not a queer person, like right. why do you why do you care <laughs> so much? Yeah, I think I think that's that's really powerful. You know, it um, it makes me think of an ECE teacher I know um, who had a little four year old you know boy um, approach her and say, "Is it like is it wrong that I want to wear a dress?" And the mm -hmm. teacher's like, "No, a lot of boys wear dresses." Like. Mm -hmm you know, you can wear a dress and, um, but it does put that, that teacher expressed to me, like, this is obviously not something that I'm going to share with parents at this point, yeah. you know, um, because the, the child is, doesn't appear to be in any trouble, but it, it, you definitely see that. And so when you talk about making this part of the background radiation, what a great phrase. You're, you're full of like these amazing phrases and they're like there, and there's a bunch we and like from our previous conversation that I won't like put out there, but, but like just such good stuff, like to you know, for, for that young child to be able to say, I can wear a dress if I want to, uh, and nobody's going to get mad and nobody's going to make fun of me and nobody's going to, you know, think that I'm a bad person for doing it. How, um, how close is that victory in your, in your estimation? Well, that depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you're right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I think we're almost there, but then I think about the fact that um, there are literally dozens and dozens of bills right now in states across the country that are anti-trans right. more than ever, right. ever in the past. And I think, yep. wow, I thought we were getting somewhere. Yep. Um, but it is, it's part of the natural cycle that we observe in society of a group achieving rights, you know, a group at first is completely oppressed and then they're allowed to be our entertainers, but they don't get any rights. And then they get some basic rights and then there's a pushback against that. That's right. And then That's right. continue moving forward. And you, you see that with every group. So this is sort of like, yeah. not only are we there for queer people in general, but trans people sort of lag behind the rest of the queer community in that way. I think because to a, the average cisgender person being trans is a little harder to understand than being like gay, lesbian, or bi. Right. Um, and so we, we tend to lag a little bit further behind on those rights. Um, why is that? Why, why is it harder in what, why, like in your experience, why is it harder to understand trans identity over like being lesbian, gay, bi? I think one of the reasons for it, um, is that most people, you know, the vast majority of people experience attraction in some form you know, sure. whether they're gay, straight, whatever, they, they experience yep. attraction. And so I can take your pre-existing experience with that and help you see how there are similarities, but differences. You know, you feel this way about your wife. I feel yep. this way about my wife. A gay man feels this way about his husband. You know, like I can, yes. I can draw on those commonalities there, yep. but I yep. think most people never have to think about their gender. Yeah. Um, their, their biological sex and their, their gender identity, which is what you feel like you are on the inside. Yeah. Um, they line up on the same side, which makes you cisgender. Yeah. And, that's, that's and any questions people. and insecurities just get suppressed. It's like, nope, nope, right. nope. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the, the, the basis of all transphobia and homophobia is, um, is gender, is gender roles. Um, 
one of the examples That's I use true, sometimes yeah. if you see a guy walking down the street and he's just like by himself, whatever, and somebody drives by, lowers their window, shouts, you know, F-A-G-G-O-T yep. at him out the window yep. and keeps driving. Yep. It's not because they know that guy's gay. It's because right. he's breaking some rule about masculinity and that rule breakage, that gender rule um, unconformingness, that's not a word, but whatever, um, has made the person- <laughs> We're disrupting language here too. We exactly. are disrupting language. All words are made up as Thor said. <laughs> For real. Um, but it, it makes the driver, it, it gives them permission to punish that person for that, that breakage of the expectation. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I, especially again, when I'm talking to um, younger you know, teachers of younger kids, we talk about yeah. dismantling sexism and gender bias as a way to not only help our girls in a sexist society, but also dismantle homophobia and transphobia. Yeah. Um, because it's the intersectional, it's all intersectional. Yep. The, the less we, we care when somebody, you know, when a boy puts on a dress. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so knowing that those are sort of, that's the, the root of this stuff. That's, that's why, you know, some people question, you know, LGBTQ community, why gender identity like trans isn't the same umbrella as sexual orientation since they're two mm-hmm. different things. But yeah. the reason we're under one umbrella is one, we share similar experiences of oppression. And two, the root of our oppression is the same. Um, so we're all, we're all fighting that same root, but um, yeah. But yeah, the, it's, that's why I think we're a little bit further behind is because when you never have to think about your gender, it's a lot harder to empathize with somebody who says, I'm not the gender that I was assigned at birth um, because you've never even thought about it. And it also makes people right. more uncomfortable because yeah. if, if you aren't the gender you're assigned at birth and I've never even thought about it, what does that mean about my gender? Right. And if, if, if you can't coherently tell me what it means to be a man or a woman and give me a definition that I can understand and cling to, then it makes me nervous about gender roles and about yeah. what that means as a society. When you tell me gender is socially constructed, yeah. it makes me nervous. And it, it makes me feel like something I took as foundational to the world is, is not true. The same way as when people hear that race is socially constructed. Right. You know, they, they come from an understanding that, that it's not, that it's somehow inherent and biological. And when you right. tell them that it's not, they go, well, wait a minute, that's not, that can't be true. And it's yeah. the same thing being with your gender, being trans. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, when, it, when people talk about race being a social construction, that when I, when I hear folks use that phrase, I panic because it's like, okay, you're either going to go exactly in the right direction with this or exactly in the wrong direction with this. The right That's direction it. being it's a social, it's a social construct. And so there's no reason that we should belittle somebody because, because they speak a different language, have a different type of hair, have a different type of skin color, but where it usually goes is, so why are we even talking about this? Like we can just be colorblind. And so, you know, yeah, that it's such an interesting thing. Um, uh, Super deep. I'm, I'm just like jotting things down because I think to one thing I've heard in in a lot of these like cis hetero circles is like it's they don't like say it because, you know, liberals, um, <laughs> they don't just like come right out with it. Um, but it it seems like a lot of folks believe that, OK, maybe I can buy that a lesbian by a uh, gay person was just like born like that, right? They were just born like that. And I just don't get it, like whatever, but they were born like that. But there's a perception that being a trans person is a hundred percent choice that yeah. you just want attention and you just want to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. am, am I reading that correctly as far as how uh, one of the distinctions and one of the reasons transphobia is so difficult for people uh, who are not in trans communities to address. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. Um, because, you know, I, I tell people, I, I did not choose to be transgender. I did choose to transition. Yes. And that, that's a distinction. Um, I, I could have attempted to live my life as the yep. wrong gender. I don't know yep. that I would have been happy or successful as a person, but I could have yeah. tried that. And I think that's where that perception comes from, that it's a choice, is because it's one of those things where transitioning is a choice. Yes. Um, and like for me and for many other trans people, it's not really a choice because yep. you're really making the choice between transitioning or maybe not surviving. Um, so it's less of a choice and more of a survival, um, yeah. but it is still inherently a choice to act upon an inside identity. And that's, and yeah. people see that though, some, some people still think that about being like uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual too. That right, you right. You could choose to not act on it. You could, you know, yeah. Uh, people sometimes who are religious will say stuff like that, that, you know, yeah. they don't have a problem with you being gay. They have a problem with you not suppressing those urges. And yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Like, don't make me know about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if there's a way I can like, I can like choose not to be a Chicano. Like I think there is, I think there is, there's definitely a way, you know, um, anyway, that's a different conversation. Um, no, thank, thanks for, uh, for, for speaking to that because I do think that, that's a disconnect that a lot of folks feel. And, um, and I, and I think the other side of that coin is that there are lots of things that make up who we are. Mm -hmm. And and it's a matter of whether we are choosing to act on those things or not, but it doesn't change the fact that that's who we are. And, uh, and I think that's really powerful. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, take, to be a good pet parent. Um, However, (laughs) I want to, I want to end with, with something kind of fun. Uh, So, want to get so I'm all about like talking about music for a few minutes and because I think music just reveals so much of who we are and mm-hmm. I've realized that um one of the most disruptive things I do in my day-to-day life is share with people the type of music that I listen to because it always surprises mm-hmm. them like no matter who it is um but I want to know five entertainers musicians um you know performing artists like whatever it doesn't just have to be music who are really, really speaking to you right now. So this top five doesn't have to be a ranking, doesn't have to be hierarchical, doesn't have to be set in stone. It can just be, here's who I'm feeling right now and here's why. So do you have some off the top of, off the dome, if you will, uh, that uh, you can share? Yeah, sounds like a truly abolitionist way to make the list, being non-hierarchical. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I'm a big music person. I actually started, my first major in college was a double major in vocal performance and music business before I switched over education. So music's been my life. Um, (laughs) Nice. And you have, then that means you have a second act in SOAR, right? That (laughs) you're going to be producer. (laughs) Um, I'm a big queer stereotype and that I love Broadway. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right before the pandemic, it literally like a month before my wife and I took a trip, uh, a four day trip to New York and we saw Hades town and the Moulin Rouge Broadway version. Um, nice. they were so good. They were so good. Yeah. I'll bet. So, um, if I could just put Broadway as like one. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I relate yeah. to that. I may or may not know the entire libretto to Les Mis, like the whole oh, thing start to finish. I might not, I may or may not know that. Mm-hmm. But this isn't my list, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it back. To <laughs> One thing more, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I love I love all Broadway. Uh, let's see what else. My my tastes tend to go very '90s in general. Nice. Um, I'm a late '80s baby, but my sister is an early '80s baby, and a lot of the music in my house growing up was her music. Yep. Um, 
so I got exposed to a lot more 90s and you know my friends were, were more of the like early aughts as far as okay. like yep. when we came from our own music taste you know yep that makes sense of the world and stuff and the like pop punkness of like Blink-182 and oh uh, yeah romance and stuff like that but my, like I don't know if you know the movie Empire Records but yes I've, I've not a- seen it but Oh gosh, it's very good. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, it's terrible, but also good. Um, <laughs> but the soundtrack to that is perfect, in my nice. opinion. It's like nice. the Jim Blossoms, the Thes, like, oh, yeah. all this very 90s good stuff right there. Yes. Um, so like, okay, so my list so far is Broadway and yep. the soundtrack for Empire Records. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I also like a lot of stuff that might be considered oldies because like, my parents have very different music tastes, but okay. oldies were like that was the one place in the middle of the Venn diagram for them. So okay. I do that on <laughs> the Beatles and David Bowie mostly. Oh yeah, okay. Um, and David Bowie also is my like gender icon. Yes. Like, I, I'm not actually my gender is not male. My gender is David Bowie. Yes, uh, my gender is <laughs> yes. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love so, it. <laughs> that's the third one is David Bowie. Um, let's see, two more. Uh, I mean, my go-to music whenever I just need something to listen to is the mountain goats. Um I, feel I like I've heard them. Go ahead. <laughs> I adore the mountain goats. And and for me, a lot of music is about the poetry of it. And I truly mm. believe that Don Darneal, the the lead for the Mountain Goats, is one of the greatest current living poets. Wow. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of hip hop artists that rival him in sure. their level of poetry for sure. Um, but he's one of the greatest poets, I think, currently living. Um, his stuff is just phenomenal. The kind of thing where it's like, to Spotify lyrics, just like, right oh. now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. And his, his voice can be kind of an acquired taste. I'll warn you now, but I adore him. Um, and uh, let's see, I need one more. Uh, let's see. Oh, I've been listening to a lot of Scottoon Network lately. Okay. Um, it's one guy who I think his band that he's normally in is called like we are the union or something like that. Okay. And that's like the ska band that he's in. But Scott to network is him just covering songs of all kinds of different genres in ska, making them into ska. Songs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and so he's got a whole album. He's got a whole album of like cartoon um, theme songs done as ska music. He's oh, got that's amazing. Of ska, ska is so underrated. Yeah. Like it's oh so God. underrated. They have, there's every kind of ska out there and it's, and it's so much fun. And ska is fully in my, like, I need to write a paper and I need to stay jazzed. Like, put on some ska and you're never falling asleep. Like, Oh, I love it. No, that's good. Ska is good for me when I'm in a crappy mood after school. And it's like, and, you know, for, for me, there's, like, Latin ska. There's, like, Inspector, who's, like, freaking amazing. There's uh, El Gran Silencio, the, the, you know, border crew and that kind of thing. And ska is great rebel music, too. Like, there's yeah, been so much dope stuff that came out of the ska movie. The guy who does ska Two Network, I heard about him through his TikTok where he did a lot of work educating people about the history of ska and I learned a bunch about it too even though I kind of knew the basics already but like sure. a lot of people don't realize that it was this fusion of British punk with Afro-Caribbean music yeah. um, over at the time and um, especially when there was that wave of immigration from the Caribbean to the UK in like the 40s and 50s That's um, right. that immigration had a huge impact on what became ska um, and so, like, I think sometimes people who don't know ska well think they sort of lump it in with, like, punk, pop punk, 
stuff like that, which can be very white genres. Yeah. And they don't realize how beautifully black ska is. Yes. No, it really is. That's am- I, So the real reason I do that segment is so I can get more music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Solved. Um, well, listen, um, I want to let you get to your day. Uh, but wh- how, so what are you working on right now? How can people support what you are working on? How can they, how can they find you and follow your ideas and just like benefit from like the greatness that is you? Well, I've mentioned TikTok enough to be a Gen Zer at this point, so you can follow <laughs> me on TikTok. Uh, it's just my name at Owen Bondano. Um, I'm also on Twitter. There, I am at Owen Makes Stuff. Owen uh, Makes Stuff. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you can follow me either of those places. Awesome, uh, Owen. Thank you so much for uh, being a disruptor for being on here today. Really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we just like. I feel like we just scratched the surface of all the possibilities of conversation. So hoping uh, you'll come back and uh, and we can uh, chop it up some more. And looking forward to seeing you at Space Camp. Absolutely. It's going to be super fun. All right, y'all. That's all we have for today. Um, check us out. Follow us at uh, Two Dope Teachers and Two Dope Productions. Um, make sure that you are subscribing and rating and giving us all that good stuff. This is Gerardo Munoz. I am 